You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. I'm Mabel Chu, one of the BMJ's associate editors. This week, we published a raft of articles about the problem of unpublished data in science. What's prompted this call is the tale of raboxetine, an antidepressant which the German equivalent of NICE has just said is not only ineffective, but also potentially dangerous. Other reviews had indeed shown a superiority of raboxetine compared to placebo or or no differences compared to SSRIs. I think the main difference in our review was that we included a substantial amount of previously unpublished data. Also this week, we'll find out what to do with a child who bruises easily. Taking blood from a child can often be quite traumatic and you might only get one chance to get a nice specimen of blood. First, Berta Twizelman looks at raboxetine and the case of the missing data. My name is Berta Twizelman and I'm one of the BMJ's web editors. Today I'm talking to Beate Wiesler from the German Institute for Quality and Efficiency in Healthcare, ICWIG for short, And she is deputy head of the Department of Drug Assessment. Hello, Beate. Hello, Beate. Well, you and your colleagues from ICWIG have conducted a systematic review and meta-analysis of randomized controlled studies of raboxetine, which is an antidepressant in the norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor class. And you found that raboxetine is actually not significantly different to placebo and significantly inferior to, or even potentially harmful, compared with the SSRIs. The drug's been on the market for 13 years, so I thought this was a rather notable finding. Uh, What did you do in your review that hadn't been done before? How does your review compare with previous work? Yeah, um, other reviews had indeed shown a superiority of raboxetine compared to placebo, or, or no differences compared to SSRIs. I think the main difference in our review was that we included a substantial amount of previously unpublished data. And we have shown that these unpublished data completely changed the conclusions on on raboxetine's benefits and harms that were available in the published literature before. So, um, in principle, this review is a striking example of publication bias and its um, effects. Okay, so you say unpublished data. How did you get hold of them? Um, Actually, ICWIC's procedures, because we know uh, of the problem of publication bias, um, Mm -hmm. our procedures foresee that we um, look for unpublished data. And when we assess a drug, we um, contact the manufacturers of this drug and ask them to sign an agreement that regulates um, how these manufacturers can submit data and also um, clarify that we can publish these data in our assessment reports afterwards. Okay. Um, so is ICWIC, um, is its way of proceeding, is that similar to what NICE in this country would do or are there differences? Yeah, um, as far as I understand the procedures of NICE, NICE is also aiming to include unpublished data and requires data submission from um, manufacturers. I think a, different is, a difference is that NICE... Um, allows for for confidential data then. So data can be cl- declared confidential and then they aren't shown in the NICE reports that go to the public. I think these data are then reviewed within the appraisal process, but once the NICE report goes uh, public, these data are blackened. 
um, and that actually is a difference to the ICWIC procedures. Um, we are obliged by law that our processes and our uh, products or reports are transparent, so we wouldn't allow for any commercial in confidence data to be included in our report. Right. So actually the, um, the permission to publish the data is part of the agreement of, uh, we, we have with the manufacturers. So all the data that you've used in this particular systematic review would be in the public domain now? Right. Uh, they, they are available from our report, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is, again, available on our website. It, it was quite interesting because you mentioned in your paper that um, the drug was licensed in Europe or has been since 1997. Right. And the FDA gave it, I think, initial approval and then withdrew that. So it's not licensed for the U.S. market. Yeah, I mean, it's correct. In the, the drug was first licensed in Europe in 1997 on, on the basis of the studies available at that point in time. Um, then it seems to be the fact that Pfizer tried to also um, license the drug in in the U.S. Um, and probably the FDA asked for additional studies. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, the studies that were unpublished mainly were studies conducted after 1997. Right. Um, and and. Probably when the FDA received the submission dossier, including these studies, they decided not to license the drug. Um, Unfortunately, we don't know anything about the decisions made at the FDA because um, when the FDA decides not to approve a drug, there is no documentation available on that uh, on the FDA website. So I'm I'm wondering whether also the European regulatory authorities, um, if they would have reviewed the data available to the FDA, um, would have decided to approve that drug. So we are suggesting that maybe um, the regulatory authorities should build up a system that might trigger a re-evaluation of a drug once uh, uh, um, there is, there is a, a non-approval in a different market. Right. Yes, it, it, that, that, that does seem to be necessary. Now, that's one of the recommendations based on the results of your study. Are there any others? I think the, the most important thing is that we do need a legal obligation to register all clinical trials at inception and to publish all clinical trials, trial results once uh, the studies are um, finished. Um, because we, we know since since more than 30 years that publication bias clearly distorts the picture of a drug and uh, and therefore clearly impairs the treatment of patients. Um, publication bias affects both the decisions on a system level, but also the clinical guidelines and even individual treatment decisions. So yes. I think in the interest of patients, there should be a legal obligation to publish all clinical trial results. Yes, that's um, there, there is such a, a mandatory results publication in the U.S. now. I mean, in, in 2007, with the FDA Amendment Act, the, um, the publication of results from clinical studies became mandatory in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, in Europe, we are not yet there. Um, yeah, now it seems that Europe needs something very similar. Now, in your, in your review, what did you not look at? What kind of limitations would you, st- would you say your method had? We... We only looked at summary data, so we didn't have access to individual patient data. That is, uh, our review didn't allow for an extensive subgroup um, investigation. 
So there might have been subgroups of patients uh, who, who profit from riboxetine that, that isn't known from our data. Um, another, di another limitation might be that most of the studies are only short-term studies, although on the other hand this is, uh, this is quite common in antidepressant research. So the studies only were about 8 to 10 weeks mm -hmm. long, um, so we don't know much about the long-term effects. Um, on the other hand, we think that uh, that we have now have a substantial comprehensive set of data on riboxetine, so we wouldn't consider uh, this review endangered by any publication bias anymore, um, which, which always is a big question if you look at a systematic review based on published literature. Yes. Where would you go from here? What would you do next? As I said, uh, our main recommendation from this study is indeed uh, a mandatory uh, trial results publication mm -hmm. also to be set up in, in Europe. There is some guidance on that in Europe, a European study registry, the UDRA-CT database, mm -hmm. but that isn't available to the public, and so far this database doesn't include any study results. And concerning results uh, publication, there is still a discussion of, uh, of the requirements ongoing. So there is some regulation in Europe, but we don't know when this will become effective. Another problem with that might be that probably this regulation will then only be um, effective for, for future studies. Right. So we still have the problem that we have a large number of drugs on the market um, for which these regulations will not make uh, any data available. So mm -hmm. we have to look for, for a different solution for that. And one idea is that the regulatory authorities who hold all the data, um, or at least parts of the data on these, uh, these drugs, should make their data available to the public. Right. So that um, also reviews of older drugs um, would not be distorted so very much by publication bias. Right, I think that's a very clear message there. Thank you very much for your time. And research from Beata and her colleagues, as well as various commentaries on the importance of publishing all data on clinical trials, are available online. Earlier this week, we published an article from our Rational Testing series on how to investigate easy bruising in a child, often quite a loaded question. To answer this, I'm joined by Dr. Julia Anderson, a consultant haematologist, and Dr. Angela Thomas, a consultant paediatric haematologist who co-authored the article. Welcome to you both. Hello. Hello. So let's take the case scenario of an eight-month-old boy. So he's not walking yet, although he is crawling around. He's brought in by anxious parents to his GP with a sore throat and a temperature. His parents haven't commented, but his GP notices quite obvious bruises on his temple, chest, arms and back. His parents say there's been no trauma and they're getting increasingly concerned by the GP's observations. Angela, for a start, what should be the next step? In a child who's presenting, particularly at a young age, with unusual or unexplained bruising or bleeding, there are several thoughts that should go through your mind. One is whether there's a problem with the clotting system in the, of the baby. Uh, secondly, whether perhaps there's a problem with production of one of the 
cells in the bone marrow, particularly talking about platelets as they're important in primary hemostasis. And thirdly, whether the injuries are accidental or even non-accidental. So the first, the non-invasive thing uh, to do would be to take a full history from the parent. Now, small children may not have had any hemostatic challenges, so it's important to ask very specifically when they were born, was there any unusual or unexpected bruising or bleeding around the face or other parts of the body? Did the umbilical cord separate normally? Was there any excessive bleeding? Uh, whether there was any bleeding or bruising uh, at sites of intramuscular injections such as vaccination. After that, it would be important to ask the family whether they have any uh, history in the family of abnormal bruising or bleeding. And so at the end of a fairly short uh, uh, time, you should be able to build up whether this family has a, a bleeding history and whether the baby themselves has a history of any unusual bruising or bleeding. Although very small children are often not on any medications, it's important to ask whether they are. Um, bearing in mind sometimes children can have obtained or uh, ingested drugs that they should not have taken, particularly warfarin. Obviously in a baby who's not mobile, if they have been exposed to warfarin when they shouldn't have, then the one would be very concerned that it had been given deliberately. Okay, thank you. So... Let's assume that in this case there were no untoward events. He's had no previous history of, of surgery of any sort um, and there's also absolutely no family history of bleeding disorders. What should we do next with examination? Well, it's important to also bear in mind this child was febrile um, and was not well in himself. So I think somebody, either the GP or a, a paediatrician coming across a child would think, could there be an acquired abnormal uh, bleeding problem? How sick is this child? Because that would take a priority in case there was an acquired problem like disseminated intravascular coagulation. Are there any other general health issues that you might want to look for? I think one of the other things that one might consider is, is could this be some sort of bone marrow failure problem? Uh, the things that come to mind to me as a haematologist would be something like uh, leukemia or possibly infiltration of the bone marrow, although I'm not sure from a, a primary care that would necessarily be at the forefront of their mind. However, examining a child who is abnormally bruised, examining for a, a liver and spleen to see if they're enlarged, general health of the baby and see if there are any enlarged lymph nodes may well yield uh, important either negative or positive information. Mm. Thank you. Are there any tips for what one ought to do also with the uh, possibility, distant though it may be at this point, um, of excluding non-accidental injury? Although one can get an, an idea from the history and from examination, the ultimate thing to do would be to actually test the baby's blood to check whether there was or was not any evidence of a bleeding disorder. One has to bear in mind, of course, that if you do find a bleeding disorder, it does not necessarily exclude non-accidental injury, but it does give an awful lot more information as to how you should proceed. Okay. Thank you. So, from your point of view, what are the most important um, causes of bruising and bleeding that one ought to keep in the back of one's mind? Although disorders such as haemophilia are very rare, they do present 
in a young child, often at the time when they start to crawl or walk. And it is actually a comparatively easy diagnosis to make if you think of it, because there's a particular pattern of abnormality of the coagulation screen, the prothrombin time is normal, the APTT is prolonged, and on measuring factor eight or factor nine, uh, one or other of them is low. Thrombocytopenia, or low platelet count, is also seen and can actually be a cause of bleeding. In a well child, it's most likely to be immune thrombocytopenia. Uh, another reason for low platelets, again, could be uh, an idiopathic immune thrombocytopenia. Again, the child is well. There are some congenital thrombocytopenias, which are much rarer, but they usually give abnormal morphology. The other disorder, which is seen probably most commonly in the population as a whole, is von Willebrand's disease. However, this is quite a difficult uh, disorder to diagnose, even in adults, but in small children, it is even more difficult because the levels are higher in small children and can uh, fall with time. However, an unequivocally low von Willebrand factor level and activity will give an indication that that is the reason for the bruising or bleeding. Now, all those tests can be done, as Dr. Anderson indicated, on that initial sample, von Willebrand factor, factor 8 and factor 9. And I know that uh, many people understand that haemophilia A and B, factor 8 and factor 9 deficiency respectively, are usually manifest in boys, but it can happen in girls. And therefore, whether you're the baby being investigated is a boy or a girl, those tests should still be done. Let's get on to the issue of laboratory testing. What should we ask for when we reach for that order pad, um, Julia? It's very important when you're starting to assess um, a child that we take into account just some basic first principles. Um, The first is that taking blood from a child can often be quite traumatic and you might only get one chance to get a nice specimen of blood. So it's important to try and think through all the tests you want to take and to take them in the most atraumatic manner possible. Um, What we um, suggest is that prior discussion with either a registrar um, who deals with paediatric haematology or the consultant or even the laboratory that deals with haemostasis can often give some information about which tests to be taking and also the tubes and how well they should be filled. We recommend that more than one coagulation sample is taken in the correct paediatric tube to enable a sample to be frozen so that if there are any abnormalities found in the coagulation screen, then we can go back retrospectively to a frozen sample and analyse that sample rather than having to go back and take more blood tests from the child. It's also very important to understand that children's results might differ from adult results, so we have to use age-specific ranges. And that's where a haematologist can help with the interpretation. The tests we would essentially recommend for a child in this scenario is to first of all assess the child's platelet count. We would do that with a straightforward full blood count and we would also request that a blood film is made. And then we would request also a coagulation screen. Straight off, we would normally recommend that assays of factor 8 and 9 are performed and also an assay von Willebrand factor 
because um, these would be the common forms of congenital bleeding disorder. I think one thing that is, is worth saying is that in teaching hospitals and specialist paediatric hospitals, it will be possible to do von Willebrand factor assays and assays of factor 8 and 9. But in smaller hospitals or district hospitals, it may be possible only to do the full blood count and coagulation screen. And therefore, as Dr. Anderson mentioned, the freezing of the plasma is incredibly important so that if there is an abnormality, then there can be liaison with a specialist lab if those initial tests are not available on site. Would you like to give us some tips on what the red flags are that would prompt a GP or emergency medicine doctor to immediately call for a specialist referral? The first count that will come back is a full blood count. So the first thing will be to see if the platelet count is normal and if it's significantly low, and that would be less than 100, then that should be a red flag. If it's slightly low, between 100 and 150, and a child who's not very well, I think I would also like that child to be referred. The next flag would be if the coagulation screen is not normal. Commonly, the abnormal pattern is that the APTT, the activated partial thromboplastin time, is slightly long. Now, the difficulty with this is it sometimes is only one or two seconds long. And I think it's very easy to interpret that if you're not used to interpreting them as thinking, oh, it's only a second or two long. That's not terribly long, is it? I don't really have to worry about that. But actually, it is a screening test. And any prolongation of that time beyond the upper limit of normal is significant because the thing that needs to be excluded is haemophilia. We've talked about factor eight and factor nine deficiency, and those things hopefully will be in the pipeline already uh, being requested on our initial screen. If they are normal, then one can go on and look at the other two factors which also can cause an isolated prolonged APTT, which is factor 11 and factor 12. And it's important under these circumstances to try and explain why that APTT is long. Factor 11 deficiency is associated with bleeding. Factor 12 deficiency isn't. And therefore, particularly in the context of could this child have had a non-accidental injury? Why is the APTT long? Could they have an underlying bleeding disorder? It's important to actually define why the APTT is long and to seek expert help into the interpretation. And I think people must not be uh, concerned to say, oh, it's only half a second long, it's only one second long, surely that can't be significant. It may be. These are screening tests, and it does indicate that further investigation needs to take place. Um, if a clinician had any query, really, whatsoever, mm. they should always just phone. There yes. should be any question. They should just phone because it is a tricky area to, you know, to, to be involved with. Thank you. And presumably, too, at an earlier stage, and whatever the results show, if the clinician is concerned about the presentation of the child, that ought to be a red flag. If, for instance, in this case, the child is febrile and has a sore throat and one wants to make sure that one's not um, missing a case of sepsis, for instance, that would be an important um, uh, red flag. Would you like to elucidate? Yes, I think if, if a child, a history and examination has been performed and the child is unwell and it can't be explained and there is uh, abnormal bruising or bleeding, then that should be a red flag. 
I think the other thing, too, to remember is if the person who's assessing the child feels uncomfortable with the relationship or the affect of the child in the presence of their carers, that, too, would be a very uh, important red flag to take the investigation further forward. Thank you both. Thank you. This podcast is based on our rational testing series. The series covers initial testing for frontline clinicians faced with common presentations. If you have any suggestions for the series, the email address is available from our website. And that's all for this week. For more information about this program and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.